Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things Nursing. And today we're welcoming Kynwin Town, who is the perioperative patient blood management clinical nurse consultant here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. And she's going to talk to us today about anemia. Thank you for having me. Cracking title and one that could really only exist in a tertiary quaternary facility, I'd imagine. Absolutely. It's a mouthful. <laughs> so so given that it is such a specialised role, I'm sure your starting point as a someone at university studying or training for nursing wasn't going, geez, I'm going to be the perioperative patient blood management CNC. What's your backstory? That's my goal. It's my dream. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I didn't even know what patient blood management was when I was a baby nurse, to be honest. Um, so my background is that I've been nursing for 11 years now, um, all of it at the Royal surprisingly, when I look back on it. My new graduate year was done here in what used to be orthopedic trauma. Uh, And from there, I moved into perioperative nursing. So specifically post-anesthetic care, where I've been acting or working clinically for the past 10 years, and I absolutely love it. And it's during that time that I've had some really interesting career opportunities that have led me to where I am. So I've worked as um, an acute pain management nurse. I've spent a number of years doing anaesthetic research. And those roles are sort of what led me to apply for a 12-month seed-funded project that was under the previous head of anaesthesia, so um, Dr. Kirsten Wusseshek. And we were aiming to reduce patient blood management use or Packard blood cell use in orthopedic patients and improve their outcomes through anemia management. And that was during their um, pre-intraoperative and post-operative phases. And at the end of that project, we had such great outcomes that thankfully the division of surgery saw the value in this role and they expanded it to all surgical specialties. And I have since been working in it since 2020 officially. And so I work there part-time and I also work in PACU still. It's an amazing example of how um, eliminating low-value treatment can actually save money and then for sustain a project like that uh, to keep doing better work. Absolutely. And we'd hoped originally that this role could just be um, ingrained in systemic processes and that my uh, presence wouldn't be necessary long-term. But unfortunately, based on the way our perioperative systems work, uh, we just couldn't find a way for that to go forward without someone supporting the role. So I'm lucky to still be here. (laughs) Who'd have thought? Hospitals are people-based systems. Indeed. Yep. All right. So let's get straight on to our five things. Your number one is what is anemia? Yes. And unfortunately, it's not an easy answer. So anemia is a symptom of an underlying disease. It's not a diagnosis. And everyone presents differently with anemia. And it's all about a person's ability to, um, I guess, compensate for that anemia. So when we're talking about anemia, we know there's over 400 different types, but I'm going to break it down into three main categories. And those are anemia caused by blood loss, anemia caused by decreased or faulty red blood cell production, and anemia caused by destruction of red blood cells. 
But interestingly, the most common form of anemia is actually iron deficiency anemia, and it's also the easiest to treat, but it's estimated to affect one in five elective surgical patients in Australia. So that's a huge number of patients who we can anticipate are going to be iron deficient anemic leading into surgery. Um, if we want a more specific answer, we have to talk about haemoglobin. So we know haemoglobin is found in our red blood cells and it's responsible for carrying oxygen throughout our body into our organs. And the World Health Organization defines anemia as a haemoglobin of less than 130 in men and less than 120 in women. Number two, what are the most common causes and symptoms of anemia? Yes. So this is a bit of a longer answer. The common causes are vast. So I'll touch on that second, but the common symptoms of anemia can be really hard to spot again, because people have really great physiological reserves in coping with it. So things we might see are shortness of breath, fatigue, which is something people often, you know, attribute to other things. Um, you could be experiencing paleness, uh, brittle nails, uh, increased incidence of infection, mouth ulcers. They're really very generalized symptoms that we see for anemia. In terms of the causes, there are so many contributing comorbidities that we look at that can affect anemia or cause anemia. So things that we see in our patients like COPD or renal impairment, any kind of cardiac history, so congestive cardiac failure or ischemic heart disease, even diabetes can affect and cause anemia. And then we've got other things that we don't necessarily think about like infl inflammation, sorry, so Long-term inflammation is a big cause of anemia and also blood loss. So we've got patients who might have uh, bleeding guts or that they don't know about or women who experience really heavy menorrhagia. So those are big contributing factors and causes of anemia. So uh, this may be a dumb question, but how much is your food intake related to clinical anemia? Because, you know, people are like, oh, you know, I've got to eat more red meat because my iron's low. Is that is that a furphy, is that correct or incorrect? It's absolutely correct. So in terms of food intake, it is around that iron deficiency that you've mentioned and then that flow on effect for anemia. So we see it all the time. Malabsorption as well as poor intake or an inability to absorb iron is really common. It's actually really hard to absorb iron, particularly if you are vegetarian as well. And the requirements are higher than you think. So that's when we look at supplements for people. Um, and again, it's very common, particularly as people get older as well. You know, they're not receiving the same oral intake that they would have perhaps when they were younger in terms of their intake. Yeah. Okay. And I'm um, going back to point number one, where you were saying one in five, like that's a huge number. You know, is this something that, you know, annually, if you go to your GP, should you have a blood test? Should you check for anemia? Do you wait until you're symptomatic? Yep. So when I mentioned one in five, I mentioned iron deficiency anemia. Yes, please go to your GP and get checked. It is so uncommon for me to work up patients who have actually previously had iron studies done in terms of anemia. And people can absolutely be iron deficient without being anemic. So that's the other thing as well. There is definitely cause for you to go and get checked through your GP. Please do. And please encourage those people who are in your family or friendship circle who are of an age where anemia might be playing a bigger role based on comorbidities. It's definitely worth getting checked. So what is the age? I'm dreading what you're going to say. No, no, look, there's no specific age. It's really based on those comorbidities. Yeah. If you have pre-existing features that could cause anemia, um, it's just worth getting it checked. Yeah. Great. 
And is that especially if you're going to have surgery? Like is it something we should be prompting our own GPs if we think, you know, I've got to get a knee operation, it might be useful to just know... A hundred percent. That is something we love to see and we encourage our patients to do because often people will sit on a waiting list to have a joint surgery done for years. And in that time, we don't actually take an active role in, in managing them or working them up because there's so many hundreds of patients. And so we really want them to be able to go to their GPs and say, let's investigate everything and get me as fit as I can be for surgery. Yeah. yeah. Terrific. All right. So your number three is who do we need to screen for anemia and how do you actually go about doing it, which we've, we've kind of led beautifully into, haven't we? We've bled into it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have. So, I mean, at the end of the day as nurses, we should be screening almost everyone for anemia um, and iron deficiency as well. Who do I screen? So my role specifically looks at high-risk surgical patients. And when I say high-risk, I mean, patients who are anticipated to have 500 mils or more of blood loss during their surgery. That sounds like a, a very large amount of blood loss, but actually that fits the bill of so many of the elective surgeries we do here. So as an example, uh, you mentioned any of our joint replacements, so our hips and our knees, our major spines, all of our colorectal patients, major vascular, gynae oncology. You know, it's a huge list of patients who we anticipate are going to bleed in surgery and should be worked up. Yeah, it sounds like a lot, but it's equivalent to a donation of blood, isn't it? So like, so we, we normally would tolerate that very well and not need any intervention. Absolutely. Other, other than an orange juice and a, yeah. a, a biscuit afterwards. Yeah. And that's the goal. And that's the plan, you know, for any patient who doesn't come in anemic, um, that is absolutely the pathway that they usually take, which is good. Um, in terms of how do I screen? This is kind of a, a generalized answer for every nurse who might suspect that their patient could be showing symptoms or signs of anemia. Um, we need to look at their history first and foremost. Is there something that's contributing to these symptoms? Um, and then we need to do a really basic panel of pathology. So we need a full blood count. We need a Chem 20. We need iron studies, B12, folate, and CRP. So when I talk about CRP, um, this is specific to my role and in interpreting those iron studies. I want to see if a patient has inflammation because if they do, we know that it can artificially inflate their iron stores or studies. It's possibly the only reasonable rationale I've ever heard for doing a CRP. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Um, so can I ask, if, if I'm a, a bedside nurse, I know that my patient is going for surgery I'm aware that there's some some comorbidities or maybe I'm aware that they haven't been eating well for the, over the last 10 days. They're looking pale. You know, what's my responsibility? Like who do I flag this to about, you know, should we be checking for anemia? Absolutely. <clears throat> the treating doctor. I would like to think in that situation we'd have some baseline pathology um, but that's a great example of if you have existing pathology like a full blood count and a Chem 20, you don't actually have to take more you can add on those iron studies and everything else to the existing pathology to do a bit more of a thorough investigation. So that's a discussion with the team. In terms of the patients I work up, and this has been a really interesting culture shift that, we've, that we're working towards, every high-risk patient should have recent pathology from within the last three months. And that's just a safety thing. And that's something that we often miss and we're working really hard to remedy. Yeah. 
Okay. And obviously at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, we're a high acuity hospital. We have a, we see a lot of very sick patients. Um, if I'm listening to this in a regional centre and we're, you know, doing less less high acuity, is mm-hmm. that how you'd yep. say it, um, patients, should I also be mindful of this? It's something to always be mindful. Absolutely. Um, having said that, if you're looking at very minor surgeries, day surgeries or things where there's not going to be blood loss, whilst it is great to have that clinical picture of your patient, it is not necessary in the same way and we would not take as an aggressive approach to those patients. Yeah. Okay. Your number four is how to optimise anemia. I'm curious what you, what you mean by that. It is a tricky one because it's very difficult to optimise anemia. In my role specifically, the most common intervention that I provide is replacing iron, so iron infusions. Now, the reason I use iron infusions is because we're usually approaching a surgery date um, that is within a couple of months. And so we don't have time to replace iron orally in that context. Um, And it gives us a really great way of boosting patients knowing that they're actually going to receive that iron and not have issues with absorbing it. So that's primarily the highest intervention that I provide for my patients. Um, Very occasionally, I will look at giving patients pack red blood cells prior to surgery. However, that is very rare and it is really only in a situation where we've got bleeding patients who need to have their surgeries done to stop that bleeding. Um, my goal in my role and as part of this is to be able to avoid pack red blood cell transfusion in patients unless it's absolutely clinically necessary because we know that there's a lot of high risks associated with transfusing, transfusing patients. So I also provide B12, folate and um, generally advice on managing blood loss in these patients. So minimising phlebotomy, don't bleed them as much every day. Um, Can we use things like tranexamic acid or cell salvage where we take their own blood during surgery and we give it back to them? So those sorts of things as well are options that I look at in terms of um, managing anemia in my patients. One other thing that I do as part of my role that I think is really important to mention is any patient that I investigate for anemia iron deficiency, if we do not have a known cause they are referred back to their GP for management after their surgery because this is actually an avenue in which we've picked up so many patients who had undiagnosed anemia and iron deficiency um, that needed to go for, you know, fecal occult blood tests and further scopes or be referred to haematology. So that's a really important part of my role as well. I wonder how often you might accidentally, yeah, come across other diagnoses um, that has perhaps been just simmering in the background Mm -hmm. as a result of what you're doing. Completely. And that leads back to patients being able to manage and live with anemia and compensate in their everyday life. You know, they might be presenting with these symptoms, but they're so used to it that they don't ever actually get it investigated. It's just become their everyday norm. Yeah, I, I remember, and it was it, it'll always stick with me. When I was on I, my my rural and remote placement as a student, there was a fellow that came in every twenty eight days for um, blood transfusions. Eighty year old bloke, he was still mobile, he mm-hmm. used a mobility scooter, but he'd get up and walk around and stuff. His legs were nearly black from the knees down, mm-hmm. and he would come in with a hemoglobin in the thirties. Yes, um, prior to transfusions. Yep, it's amazing. Wow, I think that's something you see in ED as well. Um, when you have women, 
young women who come in who have menorrhagia really severe and they'll present from their GP with hemoglobins in the 40s. But we need to remember that they walked in to the ED, you know, yes, they're having shortness of breath and they might be fatigued, but they're compensating so well. So how do we manage those patients? That that compensatory thing Mm. for the body, I used to work um, with children with cystic fibrosis in a long time ago when a lot of those kids had hardly any lung function and they would still go and run around and, you know, be quite blue, you know, the way that... The body's amazing. Yeah. Mm. So incredible. Yep. So number five is how do we actually manage anemia on the ward? Yes. I want to approach this in the context of me being a new graduate and remembering almost all of my orthopedic patients suffered postoperative anemia. And it would have been really great if I'd had a better understanding of how to manage it. So I want to start by reiterating, we are treating a patient and not a number. We're always treating a patient. So I'd like to approach this as a hypothetical. If you were a nurse who got the phone call in the morning from pathology that your patient has a hemoglobin of 70, what are you going to do? And the answer is, first of all, you are always going to review that patient. You are going to go straight to the bedside and you are going to observe the patient. You are going to look for symptoms of anemia. So things like hypotension, tachycardia, do they have any shortness of breath or increased oxygen requirements? Are they particularly fatigued or has anything changed in their level of consciousness or sedation since you saw them last? Once you've obtained that assessment, you need to take it to the team and be able to have that informed conversation around their haemoglobin and what they look like clinically. And from there, it's about managing those symptoms of anemia. So we want to know why they're anemic. That's a given, but maybe there's a good reason for it. Were they actually anemic on their pathology the day before and this is their normal? Or did they have a surgery two days ago and lose three litres of blood and they've actually been comfortably sitting in the 70s for a couple of days and they're managing okay? So it's about getting that clinical context around the patient as well once you've made sure that you've managed their symptoms. Um, And then just getting the support you need. If it doesn't fit any of those briefs, who has it been escalated to? You know, if they are symptomatic, you've engaged the treating team. But does the treating team need to involve hematology or do they need to go somewhere else in order to manage this patient a bit better? Okay, so I'm going to have a go at summarising this. Number one, what is anemia? And I was surprised to learn that it's a symptom of an underlying diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis in itself. And that there are over 400 types of anemia. And you gave us kind of three umbrellas that that sits under uh, why we might have anemia. Number one is blood loss. Number two is decreased or faulty red blood cell production. And that's where we're going to see iron deficiency anemia. Absolutely. And number three is destruction of red blood cells. Perfect. All right. (laughs) Number two, what are the most common causes and symptoms of anemia? So we started first with actually the symptoms. um, And these, you said these can be quite tricky to spot, but there's a cluster of them. um, Shortness of breath fatigue, paleness, brittle nails, infection, mouth ulcers. Now you can have all those and not have anemia, but that's some of the symptoms. And then the causes or comorbidity behind that is again, very varied, but it could be COPD, renal impairment, any sort of cardiac history, inflammation, blood loss, including heavy periods. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Number three, who do you screen for anemia and how do you actually do that? 
And you were saying specifically to your role, it's around those high-risk surgical patients, um, any patient who's anticipated to lose 500 mils of blood loss, which we were saying sounds like a lot, but actually that's what you donate blood. So it's not that that uncommon. And we, you will see it in the colorectal patients, joint replacements, gynecology, a whole collection of things. And the main thing is you want to look at the history um, and get a basic panel uh, of bloods done, and that's a full blood count, CRP, Chem 20. Iron studies, B12 and folate. Yep. Perfect. And you're essentially, I really liked that you were saying that anyone who's about to have a big surgery really should have this done uh, as a precaution precautionary thing. Absolutely. So number four, how to optimise anemia. So you were saying that um, the most common intervention in your role is an iron infusion because approaching a surgery, you usually don't have time to do this orally. Uh, Obviously, that would need to be discussed with the medical and clinical team at the time and that very occasionally you have to use packed red blood cells, but it's a big goal of your role not to be doing that. You want to be optimising in advance um, people's anemia. Number five is how to manage anemia on the ward. And you may gave us this lovely hypothetical where you were saying, look, if it comes back on the bloods that the person's got a hemoglobin less than 70, don't panic in the first instance, treat the patient, not the number. So go back in, have a look at your patient. Are they hypertensive? Are they pale? Are they tachycardic? Are they fatigued? Have they got problems with consciousness? And if any of those things, you know, obviously, escalate. But if they're sitting up in bed and they're chatting away, they don't look any different than yesterday, then have a think about why. Why have they got low hemoglobin? So have they just had a major surgery and they've been tracking along and and this is going to naturally recover? Is this actually their normal uh, anemia and we've just picked it up? But find out what it is and then escalate it as necessary. Uh, And um, you were also mentioning that, you know, it's important that if someone does have uh, anemia post-surgically that we send them back to their GP to make sure too that it, it all gets followed up. Absolutely. Well done. That was fantastic. <laughs> that was a lot of pressure. There is, yeah. Um, I would just like to, I guess, say one more thing if that's yes. okay, um, around pack red blood cell transfusion. So I touched on it a little bit um, and it was definitely a driving force around the development of this role. And I would like to uh, comment on the fact that pack red blood cell transfusion when clinically indicated is obviously fantastic, but it does come with so many risks. Like um, we can have transfusion reaction, you can have acute kidney injuries, it increases your chance of infection and length of stay. And another one that we don't think about is that you can actually develop antibodies from b- receiving a transfusion. So it should be something that we do when it's clinically necessary. We should never expose someone to that unnecessary transfusion. And that's why we're so conscious of being able to avoid it in any possible way. And I think that finishes really nicely with one plug that I wanted to get and just getting everyone in the front of your mind to consider donating blood and plasma if you're able to. Absolutely. Particularly post-COVID, there have been a lot of issues with um, getting product that we need for our patients. So please do donate. Lifeblood are fantastic. Um, Get in contact. They often visit the hospital and make a donation. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today on Five Things and teaching us about anemia. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. 
We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs, and creation spirits. We recognize that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching, and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen, and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things 